Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening. This is Angus. Just wanted to give you a spoiler warning on this episode of The Kids Talk. JJ and I delve deeply into Daredevil Born Again, and in our enthusiasm for this graphic novel, wow, we basically let it all out there as far as the story arc is concerned, the art, you name it, we go deep on this one. So if you have not read Daredevil Born Again and want to read it before being totally spoiled, please stop listening now and go give it a read and then come on back for our review of Daredevil Born Again. We hope you enjoy. And we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we delve into our graphic novel of the month for July, Daredevil Born Again. And again, I am joined by fellow kid JJ. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. And wow, what a story to be tackling this time. Wow. Yeah, this one is deep. Very heady with respect to themes and it's gritty. It's the streets and it's Frank Miller. Oh my word. This collects Daredevil issues number 226 through 233. However, the original Born Again story arc ran from issues number 227 through issue 231. Issue 226 is included in this graphic novel package as a prelude, and that prelude being the first working relationship team-up between our writer, Frank Miller, and artist, David Masicelli. Now, issues 232 and 233, in my opinion, serve as a worthy coda, if you will, for this story arc. This story arc took place between January 1986 through August 1986, if you're including issues 226 through 233. However, the original Born Again story arc occurred from February 1986 through June 1986. And what's amazing about that, JJ, is that this is the exact same time that Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns story arc was occurring over at DC. I think this is a very important time frame. There was so much going on between this and all the other books that would eventually spark the assurgence of graphic novels. And I think we'll have more to talk about on that subject later in this podcast. Agree, JJ, agree. And that is a brilliant point you're bringing up there. Absolutely. This is the germination, if you will, folks, of the beginnings of the concept of what a graphic novel would grow up to eventually be. First, these epic story arcs and Frank Miller being the writer of the time. There he is at Marvel doing Daredevil Born Again. And there he is again at the exact same time over at DC publishing Dark Knight Returns. So JJ, why don't we head on over for a little Kirby kernel as we always like to do with these graphic novel reviews and provide a little bit of information about our inspiration, Jack. Hey, Welford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. 
So our Kirby kernel for this episode centers around Jack's involvement in the creation of Daredevil and Iron Man, as told by Mark Evanier on his blog, News From Me. Now, we know Mark is Jack's official biographer and worked with Jack pretty closely, particularly when he moved out to California. And this particular question is of great interest to us, and that is, what did Jack do on the first stories of Iron Man and Daredevil? What a great question. And to that, Mark responds, the first Iron Man story was wholly drawn by Don Heck. The first Daredevil story was drawn mainly by Bill Everett. Steve Ditko and Sal Brodsky completed the inking, mostly by filling in backgrounds. Kirby aided Everett in some undetermined manner, though he definitely did not do full breakdowns, as had been erroneously reported about this story and the first Iron Man. To this, Mark continues, these falsehoods I had a hand in spreading back in the early 70s. At the time, Jack claimed to have laid out those stories, and I repeated his claim in print, though not before checking with Heck, who said, in effect, oh yeah, I remember that. Jack did the layouts. We all later realized he was mistaken. Soon after, I met Everett and found him to be equally confused. He initially confirmed it, and then when I told him I didn't think it looked like Kirby layouts, he said, oh, I guess it wasn't. The confusion in these, in these cases is, I think, understandable. Heck and Everett both did do work over Jack's layouts just not on those stories. Both also believed that Jack had contributed to the plots of those debut appearances, recollections that do not match those of Stan Lee. Larry Lieber did the script for the first Iron Man story from a plot that Stan gave him. Mark continues also, in both cases, Jack had already drawn covers of those issues and done some amount of design work. He came up with the initial look of Iron Man's armor, and he seems to have participated in the design of Daredevil's first costume. My suspicion, after interviewing both Kirby and Everett on the topic and getting only vague remembrances from each, is that Jack worked up a costume and Everett modified it. To what extent, we'll probably never know. However, Everett did tell me that Jack had come up with the idea of Daredevil's Billy Club. Mark goes on to say, one of the things we have to keep in mind when researching this kind of thing or evaluating conflicting accounts is that you're often dealing with people who have had truly rotten memories. Jack's was sporadic, at least when he was speaking to the world on a convention panel or for an interview. He was a lot better in private conversations, especially with people he trusted. Stan almost brags about how poor his memory is, and Bill Everett had what we now politely term alcohol-related problems at the time of Daredevil number one. Further muddying up the memory is the fact that Jack, in effect, drew the first page, that first daredevil story in the rush to get that seriously late book to press there wasn't time to complete page one so stan had saul brodsky slot together a paste up that employed kirby's cover drawing you may note Artie simic's lettering on that one page whereas sam rosen lettered the rest of the issue. Mark goes on to say the biggest question here is what else Jack did on the first Daredevil story. Everett volunteered to me that Jack had helped him 
though he wouldn't, or more likely couldn't, elaborate on that. He just plain didn't remember it well, and in later years apparently gave others who asked a wide range of answers. That ranged from Jack contributing only encouraging words to working out the entire plot with him. The latter is what Jack recalled after he'd been corrected about actually doing the layouts. Stan says that's not so, and he may be right. Or... Everett may have sought out Kirby's help without telling Lee. So there's another one of those we may never know questions. However, I think, JJ, this is some really interesting insight from Mark Evanier and really shows in those early ages of the Silver Age and the bursting at the seams of creativity coming out of the House of Ideas, also known as Marvel, that there was so much collaboration going on, so many deadlines to be met, that truly many of these creations were that of the team as a whole. It really does point to, as you said, a clear collaboration among a large number of individuals. But at the same time, we're also seeing how much of a production the creation of a comic book was. There were different elements tackled by different people. And as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, there was very much an assembly line approach to it. The idea was you are producing or mass producing a product. And in doing so, there are certain, shall we say, concessions that you'll need to make. You may not have the time to do an entire issue. You may contribute a page. You may contribute the layout. You may contribute some dialogue. But in capturing all of that in the day, in their rush to get things to market, that's where we lose who actually did what. I think ultimately, they were pretty happy with the end result. JJ, great encapsulation right there and way to cap that I couldn't agree more and you really summed it up for folks and gave us that pertinent reminder of really what it takes to put an issue out there on the newsstands at that time so with that why don't we move on to a little creative chatter where we'll talk about Frank Miller and also our artist David Masicelli whoever is this artist and this writer I must meet them creative chatter now, for our writer, Frank Miller. He is one of the few auteurs of the superhero genre. Like many Hollywood directors, he manages to put his mark on the stories about the men in tights, despite the strict format of the genre. The psychology of the characters, Batman has a deep trauma, he should see a therapist, but instead he acts out his violent fantasies, and the detailed gory violence of Miller have been used by many others and have triggered a new form of comics. Born in Almy, Maryland, Miller grew up in New England. He made his debut in 1978 with the contributions to Gold Keys, The Twilight Zone. He soon also drew for DC anthologies and Marvel titles like Spectacular Spider-Man and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Miller's first claim to fame was his run on Daredevil, which he took over from Gene Kalan in 1978. Miller put his mark on this series with his own film noir style and the introduction of new characters like Elektra. He drew and co-wrote it until 1983. In 1986, he returned to the title, this time only as the writer, working with artist David Masicelli on the storyline Daredevil Born Again, which we're reviewing now. Miller worked with Bill Senkowitz on the graphic novel Daredevil Love and War that same year. 
as well as on the miniseries Electra Assassin for Epic Comics. While working on Daredevil, Miller also did Wolverine miniseries with writer Chris Claremont and created his own first graphic novel series, Ronin, for DC. In 1983 and 84, also for DC, Miller created Batman The Dark Knight Returns in 1986, starring an older and retired Batman. With this series, Miller redefined the character and introduced more adult-oriented storytelling to superhero comics. Now, many might say the same here of Daredevil. He also returned to the character's origins with Batman Year One, another collaboration with David Masicelli. Miller left DC after a dispute over creator's rights and began a collaboration with Dark Horse in the early 1990s. He worked with Jeff Darrow on Hard Boiled and with Dave Gibbons on Give Me Liberty, featuring the character Martha Washington. He additionally took on writing screenplays and worked on the second and third RoboCop films. A comic book version was made with artist Juan Jose Rep called Frank Miller's RoboCop. In 1993, he returned to Daredevil once again by retelling the character's origins in Daredevil, Man Without Fear, in cooperation with artist John Romita Jr. Frank Miller began working on his famous Sin City series in 1993. This crime noir title became Miller's main project for the rest of the 1990s and was mostly published under Miller's own imprint, Legend. He also collaborated with Darrow again on Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot, which was also adapted into a television series for Fox Kids. He additionally wrote several scripts for Todd McFarlane's Spawn. In 1997 and 98, Miller worked with Simon Beasley on Bad Boy for Uni Press and with his wife Lynn Varley on 300, a retelling of the Greek War. By 2002, Miller began a new collaboration with DC, Batman The Dark Knight Strikes Again. In 2005, he scripted All-Star Batman and Robin The Boy Wonder for artist Jim Lee. Several of Miller's graphic novels adapted to films. Adaptations have been made of Sin City in 2005 and 300 in 2007. And it was Miller's tone and stories that were the base of the 2003 Daredevil film. Miller himself has co-written the screenplay for two Robocop films, as I had mentioned before, and he directed his own adaptation of Will Eisner, who I know he greatly admires, The Spirit in 2008. The War on Terrorism inspired Miller to create his heavily criticized graphic novel, Holy Terror. And for its anti-Islamic propaganda, originally intended as a Batman story, eventually created a new superhero called The Fixer. The book was released by Legendary Comics in 2011. In that same year, Miller also alienated up with rants about the occupiers at the time, who he called thieves and rapists on his personal blog. So Frank Miller's story, not only personally, but professionally, has been an ever-growing and evolving one. JJ. Well, that's quite a pedigree coming from his background there. And I think he's teamed up with an equally high-level artist in this particular case. And that artist is, as we've mentioned, Dave Mezzicelli. Mazzuccelli studied at the Rhode Island School of Design and began his comics career in the early 1980s. For several years, he drew comics in the superhero genre. He had a regular run on Marvel's Daredevil and developed the popular Daredevil Born Again storyline with Frank Miller that we're reviewing today. He also worked with Miller on Batman Year One for DC Comics, as you mentioned, 
Soon, he developed his own style, and in 1990, he submitted a portfolio to Raw Magazine, but unfortunately, he was rejected. Years later, after three issues of his highly praised magazine, Rubber Blanket, Mazzuccelli transformed the Paul Auster novel, City of Glass, into a graphic novel with artist Paul Karasek. David Mazzuccelli's short stories can be seen in the magazine Drawn in Quarterly, and his cover art has graced the issues of The New Yorker. In 2009, he published his graphic novel, Asterios Polyp, for Pantheon Publishers. Mazzuccelli was a teacher at the Rhode Island School of Design and the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Wow. He brings also a very strong, strong background to this one. And JJ, I can't help but feel after having read many now of Frank Miller's works, particularly over on the Batman side of the house and the earlier Daredevils, and then looking at Mazzuccelli's art here, which we'll get into very shortly with Daredevil, that there was a wonderful working relationship between these two. I definitely see Miller's influence rubbing off on Mazzuccelli, but also at the same time, Mazzuccelli bringing a whole other skill set to bear on this Daredevil Born Again run, which absolutely just leaps off the page. So JJ, let's head on over to our literary aisle where we'll discuss our story for Daredevil Born Again and also provide our critique of the visual storytelling of the art of one David Mazzuccelli. Arlando, there's our literary aisle. Now that we're over on our literary aisle, let's give a little encapsulation of our story arc, shall we? Karen Page, the former secretary of Nelson and Murdoch, left New York City to pursue an acting career in Hollywood. However, her plans did not work out, and she became a star of pornographic movies and a heroin act. Whoa, we went dark real fast on this one. Unable to take control of her life, she spirals deeper and deeper into an existence of hunger need and desperation until she finally sells Matt Murdock's secret identity for a shot of heroin. Well, this information eventually reaches the kingpin who proceeds to test it. Over the next six months, he uses his vast influence to hound Matt, causing his accounts to be frozen by the IRS, the bank to foreclose on his house, and in general, makes Matt's life increasingly unbearable. He even manipulates police lieutenant Nick Manolis into testifying that he saw Matt pay a witness to perjure himself in a case. In the resulting trial, Matt manages to avoid a jail term, but he is barred from practicing law. The kingpin skillfully ruins Matt's life piece by piece, but he cannot see kingpin's handiwork. Instead, he is convinced that he is simply unlucky and that there is no enemy for him to fight except for his increasingly desperate and violent attempts to investigate the situation. But the kingpin overreaches himself. He can't help himself from delivering one more strike and he has Matt's house bombed. Well, that's pretty extreme. This act of violence tells Matt that his problems were not random, isolated incidents, but that the work of a single mastermind. Well, unfortunately, by now, Matt has become fairly unhinged. He has trouble differentiating between his fantasies and the real world. He has no money or home and believes he has no friends. He even thinks that his former girlfriend, Gloriana O'Brien, 
and his best friend and business partner, Foggy Nelson, are part of a complex, all-encompassing conspiracy against him. Oh, JJ, and here comes one of my favorite characters in this story. Meanwhile, Matt's confidant, Ben Urich, a reporter of the Daily Bugle, is investigating his friend's plight and finds evidence of the Kingpin's involvement. Unfortunately, the Kingpin learns of this and has Urich's source killed and Urich's hand broken to intimidate him into silence. This cows Urich into keeping quiet, and Murdoch is left on his own. Seeing no other course of action in his confused and paranoid state, he decides to attack the Kingpin and force him to return Matt's life to him. On the way, he brutally assaults three would-be robbers in a subway train, and then beats up a police officer who attempts to arrest him and takes the officer's nightstick. In his weakened and confused state, he is allowed to enter the kingpin's office and is quickly beaten by the crime lord. The badly hurt and unconscious Matt is drenched in whiskey and strapped into a taxi cab whose owner is beaten to death with the billy club Matt Murdock stole from the cop. And finally, the taxi is pushed off a pier and into the East River. When the car eventually is found, Matt's reputation will suffer the final blow. The kingpin revels in this knowledge that he has completely disgraced, destroyed, and murdered the only good man he ever knew. But when the taxi is finally found, there's no corpse. Instead of drowning, Matt managed to smash the windshield and, in a supreme show of will, cut the safety belt with one of the fragments and swam to safety. Now badly injured, Matt stumbles through New York's Hell's Kitchen by sheer willpower alone. Though injured, forces himself to keep walking just to keep from passing out. As he shambles aimlessly across the city, he is stabbed by a thug in an alley and even hit by a car. He eventually ends up being rescued by none other than his mother, who, having not been in Matt's life for decades, has become a nun at a local church. She nurses him back to health, at the same time, Karen Page, now hunted by Kingpin's men as part of Kingpin's order to kill anyone who possessed knowledge of Matt's secret identity, arrives to New York with an abusive drug dealer named Paolo Scorsese, intent on finding Matt. She's unable to locate him, but ends up meeting Foggy Nelson, who takes her to his home and in an effort to protect her from Paolo. Meanwhile, Urich manages to regain his courage and comes forward with his investigation, alerting his paper and the authorities of the situation. In the meantime, the Kingpin becomes increasingly obsessed with finding Matt and silencing Urch. He first arranges for the nurse who murdered Urch's source, killed the reporter himself, and he also arranges for a violent mental patient to be released from an asylum, dress up as Daredevil, and kill both Nelson and Page in an effort to provoke Matt into resurfacing. However, Matt intervenes in both plots, defeats the nurse, and the patient takes the latter's costume and proceeds to save Paige from both Scorsese and another hitman sent by Kingpin. The two are reunited and Matt comforts Karen with the fact that he has moved beyond regretting losing his material possessions. In a major misstep, the Kingpin uses his connections in the military to procure America's super soldier, Nuke whom he sends to assault Hell's Kitchen. In a climactic battle, dozens of citizens die while Matt responds as Daredevil for the first time since the destruction of his home. 
Nuke uses heavy weaponry against Daredevil, who is plagued with not only the challenge of fighting an inhumanly formidable opponent, but the awareness through his enhanced senses of the casualties caused every time Nuke's weapons are fired. In the end, Daredevil defeats Nuke and, in an uncharacteristic move to stop the slaughter, uses Nuke's weapon to destroy an assault helicopter that supported Nuke and further threatened citizens, thereby killing the pilot. The Avengers arrive at the scene and take Nuke into custody. Captain America, however, is not pleased with the situation. Although the authorities claim that Nuke is a terrorist, the captain is not convinced especially after a discussion with Matt, who told him that the assailant's body was heavily enhanced as Captain America's original super soldier. He is appalled to find that the country's latest super soldier appears to be a violent, muscle-bound, and insane man with little regard for the lives of civilians. Unsatisfied with the evasive answers given up by Nuke's superiors, he breaks into the base's computer files to discover more about Nuke. He turns out to be the only surviving test subject of a severely flawed attempt to recreate Project Rebirth, the same project that originally enhanced his own body. Now, enraged by the treatment he received in the media, Nuke breaks free from custody in the same base and runs amok in an attempt to attack the offices of the Daily Bugle. He's stopped by the Captain America, but nonetheless, the military attempts to kill him as do the Kingpin's men. However, though mortally wounded, Nuke does not die immediately. Daredevil first attempts to get him to a hospital, but realizing that Nuke will not survive, he then decides to get him to the Bugle instead in an effort to prove that Nuke is a government operative and that his presence in New York is a product of the Kingpin's widespread influence in the military. In the end, the Kingpin's public image as an honest and respectable businessman and pillar of the community is shattered. Although he manages to avoid imprisonment while he plans for his revenge on Matt, for his part, Matt accepts and enjoys a new, different, but apparently fulfilling life in Hell's Kitchen with Karen Page and expresses no regret over the loss of his previous lifestyle as a successful lawyer. Wow. <laughs> what an epic story arc. I think there is so much here that's happening and there are so many players in this particular game that each one of them is very clearly defined by what is it that they're trying to do what's their motivation what are they hoping to get out of this and there are so many conflicts between the various characters as well and while it is daredevil that's the primary focus there's a sort of born again that happens to a number of characters. We see Ben Urich get his courage back, and Karen Page also comes back from her slide into the conditions and the life that she was leading, you know, clawing back up from her addiction and what she would do for another shot of heroin. Yeah, this is gritty, dark story. Those characters all when they were taking central focus on many panels and several pages were equally as compelling as matt murdoch's story in many instances some of what folks would call support characters do just that they support one single story arc 
I felt, JJ, that Frank Miller did an incredible job of making the reader care about every one of those stereotypical support characters and making their story just as compelling as Matt's. I was deeply engrossed in Karen's struggles. I was caring about how Ben was being treated as a reporter. And again, (laughs) something that kind of threw me back to the old gumshoe reporting days. And a smile would come over my face every time I read this line. And that is, I'm Ben Urich. I'm a reporter. And he he would, you know, pronounce that with with such pride as far as that he was there as a diehard news guy to get the scoop, get the story, get the truth out. And there was something very refreshing about that, particularly in some of these jaded times that we live in today. I cannot say enough about how well-crafted this story was and how not a single person or character in this book was wasted. It all created a beautiful support structure, but also kept the reader engrossed from issue to issue to issue. Agreed. I think that the treatment of all of the characters was important because we've said it's gritty. We said it's dark. It is violent. And the human factor is what helped elevate the story from just being gratuitous violence. Even the motivation of Kingpin and we see a reversal of fate for the kingpin that is truly a sense of divine justice, if nothing else, based on what he inflicted on Matt Murdock. He was reaping what he sowed by sowing violence and sowing the destruction of a life. He was, in fact, going to reap that in his, his status his ability to do the things that he could do was severely threatened and limited by his actions. It all it all blew back on him. Indeed, indeed it did. And JJ, before I'd made the statement that everything complimented in our reading, and I think it was about about the midway point of the story arc, you and I were comparing notes and we were actively engaging on our discussion thread over on our MeWe community. And you'd made the comment that you felt at points that When Matt was spiraling into his deep depression, that it really got overwhelming at times. And I don't know if you would like to expound on that comment about whether you felt that maybe perhaps Frank Miller went a bit too far with that one, or was it just so overwhelming that it made then the rising up of the ashes, if you will, the Matt Murdock character and Daredevil that much more compelling. I would say that it definitely did. The further down you go really impacts the rise that the character has at the end. And I think one of the things that is telling about this is how little we see Matt Murdock in his Daredevil costume throughout the series. And really, this is about Matt Murdock and not Daredevil. And we could dive into the whole, what is, who is he? Is he one? Is the, the is the, the other? That's, that's one of the most interesting aspects of the superhero genre is who are they and the duality of those personalities. As you're experiencing the fall, it is incredibly heavy. But I think what, what Miller does and what Mazzuccelli 
really astutely is able to support in the art is a counterpoint of the budding romance between Fozzie and O'Brien. And this is something that there's some tension in there with Matt because Matt was dating her at first and could see this as part of a conspiracy. But there's a genuine relationship there. And Foggy is the character. I think I called him Fozzie a minute ago. But Foggy is the character who he embodies hope. And you need that hope as a counterpoint to that depression, that downward spiral that Matt is experiencing. And I think the message here is that alone, it is so easy to slip further and further down. And it took a massive motivation and sheer will for Matt to claw himself back up without his friends. It would certainly have been a much easier, a much easier climb with his friends, just as he's able to support Karen and help her climb back out of the pit she had fallen in. So I think we didn't mention the Foggy storyline very much in this, in our recap, but I think it's very poignant in that counterpoint of hope to Matt's despair. JJ, that's an excellent point you're bringing up there. Uh, And not only the point of hope and Foggy representing that throughout this entire story arc. But I also feel that Foggy is us, meaning us, the reader, the average person, the most grounded character in this crazy story arc, allowing us the insight into what's going on around there and constantly going back to ground us while Matt is spiraling down, while Karen is already spiraled down, while Kingpin is wreaking havoc throughout Hell's Kitchen and everything that is transpiring and festering and just overwhelming at times throughout this story arc. There is always that foggy moment that we have in every one of these issues where oh we're back to foggy again and okay we're talking about relationships now and there's a little bit of normalcy thrown in there to provide that counter to the just amazing peaks and valleys that transpire in this right he is a very steady through line and should not be underestimated the importance of that character in not only this story but the importance of Foggy's relationship with Matt in order to help him be the best that he can be. Indeed, indeed. And JJ, the other uh, character that I absolutely loved in this, which was a fantastic curveball thrown in there by Frank Miller, was the character of Maggie. Actually seeing Matt Murdock's mother appearing in no less as a nun at a Catholic church, which, you know, for anyone who has Daredevil and is familiar with the entire history of Daredevil series. Matt is very, very, very steeped in his Catholic upbringing and that being central to his values as a character. And then to see his mother actually being a nun now and now his caretaker later in life and nursing him back to health was just a amazing, amazing reveal. And I thought was just done so well by Miller in this. Agreed. There's there's so much to talk about here, and, and we haven't even gotten to the art yet. True enough. So you know what, JJ? Let's key off of that, and let's get into David Mazzuccelli's 
art and your impressions of his art. How, what were your impressions of his art? The pencils, the inks, the colors, the layouts, the panels. I mean, this, this was uh, just a feast for the eyes. Absolutely. Now, I think one of the first things that is important to consider here is how much this feels like a Frank Miller book. Having, you know, grown up reading that early Frank Miller Daredevil run with Bullseye and Elektra, this feels like a continuation of that and looks like a continuation of that. There's so much that resonates with the approach and the layout that Miller would do that I think Mazzuccelli, and I'm speculating here, but I think he was really striving to incorporate as much of that feel to make it as authentic as possible. I agree with you wholeheartedly, JJ, reading those Frank Miller earlier Daredevils, and Frank in particular stating that whenever I want to express an event as being epic, I go wide, cinematic wide. Whenever I want to express the just giantness or vastness of the city, I go vertical. I show those large buildings that cause large shadows to be cast, those water towers on the tops of the roofs of those buildings in New York. All of that is brilliantly preserved and respected by Mazzuccelli in this. There's no doubt entering into this, this is Daredevil's world. Mazzuccelli was not trying to switch it up and make it a new rendering of Daredevil. No, he keeps this true to form, which only makes sense considering that he is providing the visual storytelling to complement none other than Frank Miller's written words. Excelsior! We're Kirby's kids. Excelsior!